Welcome back to The Unfair Folk. We are doing our Over the Garden Wall mini-series with Jack and Lavender, and we have already covered the introduction in the first episode, which means that it is time to talk about episode two of Over the Garden Wall, Hard Times at the Huskin Bee. So last time we recorded, we talked about the Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, Chris Pratt, I believe, came up at some point because of Italians. <laughs> this is the episode that Beatrice officially joins up with Greg and Wirt in their journey through the unknown because she gets caught in this thorn bush. I'm actually not sure whether she was really caught in there or if she put herself in there as a ploy in order to get them to save her to say that she owed them a debt so that she could you know, trick them into going to Adelaide. I feel like it's almost certainly that she, she placed herself there. She did, even when you see like the scene, she doesn't look really stuck. The first time I saw that, I remember thinking even by her demeanor, it seemed suspicious, especially since she had approached them earlier and offered the help. But that could also just be, you know, it's a kid's show and there has to be some sort of plot device. That being said, the trope of finding an animal or some sort of magic animal or a magical creature trapped in a circumstance that they can't get themselves out from. You help them, rescue them, assist them, trade with them, etc., etc., and they now owe you a very common one. Whether that is, you know, Aladdin rubbing the lamp to get the genie, or uh, there was a story from the Spiderwick Chronicles where someone found a, a trapped a fairy in a jar. And in order to get out of the jar, the fairy had to make them diamonds in exchange for their freedom. By the way, really bad idea because the fairy did end up escaping. And then you have a very angry fairy that knows where you live or at least knows who you are and is out for blood. So be careful with that. I wouldn't trap fairies. That movie haunted my nightmares as a child. You watched the movie? Only the movie, never the books. Is that bad? I never read the books. I read the field guide. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think I read like the first book, uh, but I don't, I didn't watch the movie. I heard the movie was pretty bad. The movie had little creatures that looked like the mucus balls from that commercial. The goblins, right? Yeah, they looked like little balls of mucus. Yeah, they were, the designs were pretty on point with the field guide illustrations, but I do remember hearing the movie is much worse than the books because it's very condensed down too. Anyways. I wouldn't be surprised if Beatrice was cunning enough to put herself in danger in order to get what she wants, although she does it in this sort of ham-fisted way that kind of drives home the fact that she isn't this grand mastermind. She's just a teenage girl trying to get her family out of a jam. And I just like that Beatrice was like, yeah, I threw a rock at a bird and got in trouble about it. That's just, you know, teenage stuff. It kind of reminds me of uh, Beauty and the Beast, where he's, like, <laughs> mean to the old lady, and then she um, turns him into a beast. Precisely. That's another, you know, big trope we see, is you're mean to an animal, or maybe a woman, or someone in disguise, someone or something in disguise, or maybe not even in disguise, but you're mean to this individual, and then you get get got, you get cursed. And it usually is a transformation curse. I, I'm a fan of a good old-fashioned trapped in the body of something that you're not curse, but maybe that's because I'm trans. <laughs> <laughs> So they make their way to a town called Pottsfield. Do you know what the term Pottsfield is a reference to? I don't, actually. It is a reference to the term Potter's Field, uh, otherwise known as a Popper's Field, which was a mass grave 
they would bury unknown or poor people in because they couldn't afford personal graves with headstones. And this wasn't necessarily a, like, they weren't throwing them all in a pit, but they weren't bothering to mark out individual graves. It was a field full of dead people you didn't know where anyone was. So they end up in this cute little rustic village with this name that sort of implies this darker secret, which is very quickly brought to life. Well, <laughs> I suppose pun intentional, because we find out that all of the citizens are skeletons dressed in pumpkins. When they first show up, one of the citizens remarks to Wirt that he looks like he's arrived a little too early. Uh, there are all sorts of references like that throughout the episode where, you know, people don't leave Pottsfield, everyone comes back. I think Enoch at the end says, we'll see you eventually. And there is no real malice or attempt to keep Wirt or Greg or Beatrice there, even after they sort of free themselves and run off, because as Enoch puts it, everyone comes to Pottsfield eventually. Um, it's also worth mentioning that despite the people in Pottsfield being differentiated from the rest of the people in the unknown through their skeletal forms, there is sort of a theory slash established fact that everyone in the unknown is dead other than Greg and Wirt, because later when they are in the cemetery in the real world, one of the graves that Wirt hides behind is labeled with the name Quincy Endicott, which is the name of the tea guy from the Rich episode. So we see Quincy Endicott's name in the real world on a gravestone, but we see him alive in the unknown. So either he went missing and was presumed dead and is still alive in this weird alternate dimension, or the unknown is this sort of afterlife limbo purgatory deal, which, you know, that's what we're talking about. Now, in Dante's Inferno, Pottsfield would be called Limbo, specifically. It was technically the first actual level of hell, rather than, like, the entrance to hell, which was also sort of a part of Limbo. Uh, the colloquial term limbo and purgatory that we use today to talk about the place that is not quite hell and not quite heaven is slightly different than the way that Dante uses it in the Inferno because limbo is a part of hell. It's just like, it's sort of like the fields of um, Asphodel in Greek mythology where there's just that big part of the underworld that's just a field where people who aren't really cool but didn't suck shit go so they're not having to go to Tartarus, where they're beaten, but they also can't go to the Isle of the Blessed, where, you know, it's cocaine and hookers 24-7. Um, have you seen The Good Place? Uh, love The Good Place. Uh, last episode made me bawl my eyes out. Oh, I cried. I binged the entire final series, final season in a day. Not a joke. And I cried on and off through the entire thing. I was physically unable to do that because the last season was, I knew was going to kill me. So I watched it as slow as humanly possible. Oh, I can't. And took like a year long break <laughs> between the third and fourth seasons. I watched the third season when it came out. When the fourth season was coming out, I was just like not watching it. And then I eventually was like, okay, I really want to see this. It's just going to destroy me. So ripping off a bandaid. When you rip off a bandaid, do you do it slow or fast? Um... Depends what I'm in the mood for. You know, I just like to mix it up. <laughs> I would, I, yeah, I, I do it fast. So that's the type of person I am. Uh, usually slow, uh, well, which actually I feel like makes it definitely hurt more. But um, I don't think it actually hurts more or less. It hurts longer. It hurts different, too. It really is personal flavor. I also think it's different 
like if you're getting hair with it slow is absolutely worse yeah like i've had my freaking eyebrows waxed so honestly at this point a band-aid i'll be fine yeah there you go um anyways so who do you think you're you you were raised christian in dante's version of this first layer of hell which is uh the mild salsa of hell this the reason i brought up the good place was because this would be the middle place right that they that um oh god what was her name mindy was it mindy yeah um, the, the middle place. This would be sort of that place. So who do you think Dante would have populated this part of hell with? Um, may- maybe just like some some okay dudes that like weren't Christian, but just like were like okay dudes. Fan tat ten out of ten. If I could give you bonus points, if this was a game show, you would be in the uh, winner circle already. That is exactly correct. This. Uh, layer of hell limbo was for essentially holy pagans good people who didn't believe in the christian god in their lifetime also specifically it was a lot of people who lived before christ was born and were unbaptized so that's why they ended up in this layer of hell because there was no jesus to save them but they also they missed the boat so god's taking it easy on them i think he names a couple philosophers and poets from ancient greece that he likes because hell to dante and to christendom is for wealth to some christendom is a the place for people who made deliberate and intentional wrong choices or who turned their back on god or, or who specifically knew about God's love and existence and refused it rather than people who just weren't granted the opportunity. This is also uh, the reason that a lot of Christians either believe or preach or are taught that unbaptized children go to limbo rather than hell. Um, This is usually in the sects where if you are not baptized, you can't get into heaven. Like there's no way that you can get into heaven, which I inherently disagree with. Uh, even if I am ad- adhering to Christian belief strictly, but there are Christians who believe that, so their way of um, not nah, condemning Calvinists like Calvinists straight up think babies go to hell. Like if you're a mm-hmm. baby and you're born, and then five minutes later your mom drops you and you die, yep. hell. Yep, because you're sinning in those five minutes. Yeah, there. It's strange to think that there's a moderate version of of belief where babies still aren't getting into heaven. It's like put it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like saying, well, we don't have room in the orphanage, but we don't want to throw it in the dumpster. So we have this box outside with like a blanket in it and we're just going to put them there. That is wildly cursed. It's wild. But that's, you know, so uh, it, it also is representative uh, of them not having made the choices that damned them. Right. They weren't they weren't given the choice to heaven. They weren't given the path to heaven. So they cannot have taken the path to hell. And it's it's sort of astonishingly moderate for the 14th century. (laughs) It also is a little bit it's a little ominous that Wirt almost decides to stay there. He talks about how Pottsfield isn't so bad of a place and he's sort of afraid of what else is in the unknown because it's unknown stop me if you've heard this one before so he comments you know maybe we can just stay here it's not so bad a place but it's not his time and it's not his place so he really can't make that decision as a living person in limbo there's no way for him to stay there the people in limbo 
may have decided to stay there rather than go deeper into hell and risk their punishment. Because an aspect of limbo also is if you kind of feel like you know you were a bad person, you can stay in limbo rather than risking judgment and being sent to hell. But through judgment is also a way that you can reach heaven. In Egyptian myths, this would be weighing your heart on the scale against a feather. And if the sins in your heart outweigh the, the weight of this feather, Anubis feeds you to this crocodile hippopotamus monster that eats you and you get sent into, you get cursed into nothingness. There's no version of Egyptian mythology where you can not go through that process, but this part of hell in the inferno is sort of the option for people who maybe don't want to risk that judgment. It's the waiting room. It's, it, 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 it's not like a waiting room like you're actually waiting for anything. It's like a room designated for people who want to wait forever. So Dante asks if there was ever a soul that was redeemed from limbo to heaven, and Virgil tells him that the mighty one, God slash Jesus, came once and took a number of souls to heaven. So that would have been when Jesus died and was risen and went up to heaven himself, uh, he would have taken a bunch of virtuous people from limbo and saved them because they hadn't been able to be baptized before he was around. It's some wild shit, but it is, I guess, the only way that souls have gotten out of limbo. The people in Pottsfield resemble pagans as well to sort of drive home this relationship. They're shown engaging in pagan-like rituals of the maypole. They're even shown engaging in sort of necromancy, if you want to flavor it that way. I think Wirt actually outright calls it a cult at one point, which made me snicker, because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it, it, it sort of is. And if we're looking towards the cult leader, that would be Enoch. Now, Enoch is a figure from mythology that you know. I would bet my life that you know this figure. I would also bet a fair amount that you won't be able to guess who it is. But go ahead and take a crack at it. Who do you think Enoch would be? I mean... It has nothing to do with pumpkins, cats, anything like that. And I will even tell you that he is a king. Is he one of, like... Is he one of, like, the kings of hell? Like, is he a, a demon? He's not a demon. He's from... I'll narrow it down, too. He's from Greek mythology. He's a king from Greek mythology. Enoch in the Bible is like the dad of that guy that was old as fuck, right? Mephistopheles, not Mephistopheles. Uh, Methuselah? Methuselah. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, strangely enough, in Dante's, in this cartoon that references Dante's Inferno, that named a figure Enoch after a figure in the Bible, which, thank you for bringing that up because I did want to mention that. Enoch is a biblical figure. Uh, he is the father of Methuselah, in fact, yes, who is this guy who lives pretty old. That's kind of it. He also lived a really long time before he was, quote-unquote, taken by God. 365 years. It's better than 365 days. Enoch is King Minos, or Minos. I'm saying Minos. That's how I was taught to pronounce it. There's also Minos. I think the correct pronunciation is Minos. You put some stank on that O. I thought it was King Midas, like with a D. No. Hold on. Pause. I'm right. <laughs> I just Googled it. Oh, my dis. No, 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 no. This is my nose. Yes. Okay. Let me be clear. <laughs> oh. The different guy. Different, 
different Greek king. I was so not even thinking of that. Yes. I was looking into to Enoch a little more because I was trying to remind myself what his thing is. Hit it. He doesn't die. In the Bible, he gets taken no, up yeah. to heaven. He doesn't die. No, uh, God just sort of zoops him upwards. He does that. Uh, also, I believe with not Elliot. Elliot is the trans name. Elijah. Elijah. Thank you. Also a trans name. The theory, like, there's it doesn't say why he does that, but like the most common theory is that he's supposed to be one of the two witnesses at the end times, which I guess also makes sense in the context of this. Oh, there you go. Completely blanked on that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that's probably why the honestly with his name. I was thinking that they picked a random Bible name that sounded impressive and slapped it onto this guy. Fully didn't consider the deeper meaning to that. So, yes, absolutely. King Minos is the king of Crete in Greek mythology, son of Zeus and Europa. He was the guy who made King Aegis. He's the Minotaur guy. Oh! He's the father of the Minotaur. Oh. Um, Well, okay, let me be. He's the stepfather of the Minotaur. His wife was influenced by a god to sleep with a bull. She then gave birth to a human child with the head of a bull called the Minotaur. And her husband, King Minos, locked the child in a labyrinth because he's a shitty guy. However, through the lens of ancient Greek mythology, because this Minotaur was a punishment sent by the gods, it wasn't his fault for being abusive, we can get into the myth of the Minotaur at another time. Let's just talk about King Minos here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound snippy when I'm talking about him because I would throw hands with this man in a hot second. Anyways, he is uh, the judge of the damned in Hades. He serves on a council of three kings uh, along with two other people whose names escape me. In Dante's Inferno is referenced as well, but rather than just being like himself in the underworld, sitting on a council and judging souls, he is described as this giant immortal creature having sort of been transformed in death as is very common in the Inferno. And he judges those who are entering into hell. So as you leave limbo and are entering into the rest of hell, King Minos is essentially the one who decides what layer or level you get sent to. He is often depicted with a serpent tail, and he wraps his tail around each soul the number of times uh, that of which layer they're being sent to. So if you're being sent to the deepest layer, he would wrap his tail around you nine times, which is pretty cool. Extra, I think, but pretty cool. And the reference to that with Enoch are all those sort of pumpkin streamers that he has that are all swaying and moving and stuff. And that's about the only similarity other than some of the dialogue he says and setting him up as the judge. Um, Enoch is also sort of the source of the necromancy in this layer. We see that the skeletons that Wirt and Greg dig up don't move or animate until Enoch shows up with the rest of the party. And we also see at the end, uh, the skeletons, as he pops out of his little pumpkin, the skeletons around him are all sort of slumped around. I don't know if they're sleeping or hungover or if he only animates them for the festival each year or he you know maybe that was larry and edward the people they dug up and only they are 
animated for the festival this year. I don't know how Pottsfield works. But Enoch is shown to be sort of the source of the undead life. So as Wirt and Greg leave Pottsfield, they both face the judgment of Enoch and are not subject to it because he, they're not dead. So Enoch saying like, all you have to do is some community service. I can't keep you here and I can't send you anywhere else is very on brand. What a wonderful harvest. And what about you? You sure you want to leave? Me? Yes. Oh, well, you'll join us someday. Uh... So we move on to the third episode, which is the second circle of hell. The fact that the episode number and the layers of hell are out of sync kind of drives me bananas because I'm already bad with numbers. So trying to keep two and three and three and four straight in my head, as simple as it sounds because it's just minus one, my brain really doesn't math. So apologies in advance if I get that wrong. Oh, um, as someone born in 1999, minus one um, kills me all the time. That's how I have to do my own age. So that brings us to the second circle and the third episode. Oh, and also even better in my notes, because I have like an introduction. I have all this like bulleted out and numbered out, but I have an introduction section. So next to the third episode, it says number four, and then it says the second circle. So I'm just really making this difficult for myself. Um, But anyways, episode three, School Town Follies, brings us to the second circle. Do you know what the second circle of hell is for? Because I don't, know, I don't know if I laid this out. Every circle of hell has a theme, right? So limbo is for the, you know, virtuous pagans. The next layer might be for the blasphemers. The next layer might be for the heretics. The next layer, you know, and, and so on and so forth. They're all sort of punishing not specific sins, but like a grouping of sins. So with that being said... Do you have a guess for what the school town follies layer of sin is? Um, it is on theme with what Mrs. Langtree is all about, the teacher. Whining is not a sin. Um, <laughs> well. See, I'm trying to think of like my seven deadly sins. I'm like, are we sloth? Are we gluttony? Like what's. That is. Yes. Keep r- roll down that road. I'd like to not roll down that road. Um, In the most repressed way possible. Wrath. What's D- what's what's wrath. her what's Mrs. Langtree's whole deal? Why is she so sad? Her her boyfriend's gone. Right. Lust. Okay. There we go. What? Yeah. Lust is at the top. Yes. Lust is lust is. That is infuriating. <laughs> you would, that you would. is the exact opposite of what I was told my entire childhood. Lust is at the bottom. <laughs> bottom for the worst people no according to what i heard uh lust is at the is is the second layer we are barely into uh, we are barely barely out of mild salsa territory this is white people spicy right here to be fair it's still hell like it's still very much hell yeah it's very much hell but like that's like it is it is antithetical to much of what is taught in many evangelical churches where lust is the absolute worst and most corrupting factor. But if we're taking evangelical churches words for things, we shouldn't be. So, (laughs) so true. So true. Um, In this circle, the manner in which the sinners are punished is being tossed and whirled about by these 
tempest winds uh, to mimic the stormy tempests of passion. I know I just said tempests a lot, but that's the the sort of symbolism being conjured up here is that they were victims to their stormy emotions. So now in the afterlife, they will forever be victims to the literal storm. No, because that makes sense. Because like, I mean, if I was making hell as Dante, as it has been designed, um, that would make sense for less to be on the top because everyone's horny a little bit. Usually. Yes. Most people so, aren't blaspheming, but everyone's a little horny. <laughs> this is also lust in, in sort of the broadest, lust and passion in the broadest sense of the word, right? Like, the, yeah. uh, there's a little bit of gluttony and greed mixed in here, too. A lot of the seven deadly sins sort of overlap as concepts, uh, because they can all sort of be boiled down to, like, overindulgence in negative things, right? Uh, whether the over, you are overindulging in anger or food at the end of the day, you know, only makes a difference to the individual. Not everybody in here is just, like, dicks out. Some of the people in here were lustful for appetite or self-indulgence. Like, you know, there's probably also a lot of people who cranked it too much or were really hardcore coke Should have had more cornflakes. Drugs, yeah. Um. God, let's not talk about <laughs> Kellogg. I hate that guy. We also, this is a, this the genre of this episode in Over the Garden Wall is very Aesop fable, not necessarily talking animals as they don't talk. I don't know the, what the rules for talking animals are in the unknown either, because Fred the horse seems to surprise Beatrice that he can talk, but there are other talking animals that just talk, and then there are animals that don't talk, but they can play the tuba. I don't know if there are even rules here. It's no rules, just right. Outback. <laughs> unknown. <laughs> <laughs> just whenever it's convenient to the plot the only reason i could think that this episode featured animals is that it was a reference to baser instincts bestial nature carnal lust that sort of thing i also think that uh jimmy brown being trapped in the gorilla suit might maybe represent you know being lost to your basic lizard monkey literally monkey brain which could be representative and and langtree lost in her own tempest of emotion that she shows very queer uh queerly very queerly very clearly she does not show it queerly she shows it very heterosexually being sad about a man in a monkey costume no she's a bi icon couldn't you tell it's just a straight relationship it. how could you do this how could you erase her? i would believe it honestly and you know what jimmy i don't want to i don't want to rag on jimmy brown too he worked in a circus in a ridiculous costume to support his girlfriend that's, that's some like dog day after that's pretty it is very fruity it's also some dog day afternoon shit where the guy robbed a bank to get money for his trans girlfriend loving we you know we stand a man who supports his partner that we see another turtle. This is the second time we see a turtle. Uh, it crawls past a raccoon and he throws it in the water. We should have like a turtle counter. The... <laughs> should add a noise. Ding, Sh turtles. Ding, ding, turtle. I'll add that fucking, a shitty clip from the oh, Master no. of Disguise of Dana Carvey saying, turtle. Uh, no, I will not. I actually don't want to relive. I was obsessed with that movie. I actually kid. thought you were going to go a different route with that. I thought you were going to go with those those annoying videos from middle school. Which one? Do you know what I'm The like famous, I like turtles. Oh, one. yeah. Ancient memes. Anyways, the boy's arrival to the schoolhouse kind of brings back an element of hope to it. You can sort of see that it was not doing well before they showed up, and they bring back this sort of spark of life to it as they do with so much through the unknown. Their presence, 
their life literally breathes life into everything they touch. And Greg specifically, too. Let me ask you something. How do you feel about Potatoes and Molasses, the song, uh, not the food? I, um, I'm going to be honest. I'm pointing a gun at your head. I'm pointing a gun at your head. You have to be honest. I liked it. It was a little annoying, but in the way that like some, a child makes something and it's endearing, but a little annoying. Okay. Super valid. What I'm going to say next is not a judgment on Greg, who I love. It is not a judgment on his creativity or the show. I hate that song more than I hate Republicans. Let me tell you why. When this motherfucker first came out, Cartoon Network decided to use it in every fucking advertisement didn't matter if they were advertising on their own thing or if they were advertising online, if they were advertising on fucking Nickelodeon. And just like, just the chorus, just the words potatoes and molasses sung over and over again. Over clips of like Steven Universe and Clarence, they were using the fucking potatoes and molasses song. And it wasn't written for that. So it, it is, it was, it weevil burrowed so deeply into my psyche that it just was ruined for me. That and I just also, needed to put that out there and get it off my chest and let everybody know that this is a safe space and you can hate potatoes and molasses if you want to. Okay, cool. I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I feel like I didn't watch the um, the show for like quite a while, yeah. actually. And that may have been inspired by that fact. It's not um, even... It's not. A little bit. I don't know why that's what they use to advertise it. It is the most, it's, uh, it's because it's the most asinine part of it and Cartoon Network has like an image to uphold. So why advertise anything sincere? But honestly, use the Adelaide song, like anything. Anyways, we are given another chance to see Greg's optimism and joy in effect, not just through potatoes and molasses, but through his resolute plan to save the school his intelligence and wit is shown he is sort of a jace if we want to talk about the good place again he is a jason mendoza character where he may not have a high intelligence in the sense that you know he's a kid he's five what eight maybe but he is very intelligent and intuitive in ways that people don't clock or you know expect from him so him having this charity concert A great idea that apparently nobody else thought of was, you know, the saving grace for this school. And it drives home that in the face of uh, hopelessness, Greg is the person to take the reins and say, let's do this. We are taught once again to not uh, make assumptions through the figure of Father Langtree, who shows up as a sort of Scrooge fat capitalist stereotype and then, you know, takes his coat off and reveals that he's so poor and he just wants to support his daughter but he has to put on this mean facade in order to i don't know he is he's being the bad guy on purpose but he doesn't want to be he's just a little guy he really is just just a lethal man i also love favorite part of this episode and maybe part of the series is when they're watching him like crying under a tuba curled up in the forest like falling asleep and greg watches all this and is like all right let's steal his stuff (laughs) It's so good. (sighs) If only something would go right for a change. Okay, I think he's asleep. 
Let's go steal his stuff. What? And despite this being the circle of hell that supposedly represents the sin of lust and being punished for lust, love is what saves the day rather than ruining it. Well, what saves the day is Wirt tripping over his own shoelaces, but let's get a little more <laughs> in-depth than that, uh, or my 10th grade English teacher will be very disappointed with me. That was gay of you to say. Jimmy Brown loving Miss Langtree and showing back up in this gorilla outfit is, and them getting back together at the end is certainly love saving the day, as well as Greg's own, you know, love for hanging out with animals and potatoes and molasses. That's what saves the day. So it's, it's another sort of refutation of, I think... I wouldn't say the core moral of Dante's Inferno because that would be incredibly reductive. But I enjoy that Over the Garden Wall didn't just say, well, we're doing this sort of inspired off of Dante's Inferno, so we're just going to have everybody suffering and being punished for their sins because that's what was happening in Dante's Inferno. Like, they took the, the, the core material and they made it a lot more fun and I would say uplifting, which, if you're making a kid's show, is a good thing. So good for, good for them. End of part two.